in the ever-deepening and awakening of the Dhamma in our hearts, there are practices that are such an enduring resource of real strength to us. They give us support and a sense of confidence and faith in ourselves and in the practice. And there's something so basic. Sometimes there are qualities that we often forget about. Uh, They don't seem to have as much gravitas as some of the others. So this evening I want to talk about the power of patience because it's something that seems to be maybe just for our everyday lives. But actually, this power of patience is one of the um, most uh, powerful practices that we can have in our practice of meditation. So in the beginning of my practice, I was very interested in learning about the paramis. Paramis are those virtuous qualities that help us walk on this path uh, to freedom. And there are things like truthfulness and um, renunciation, loving-kindness, equanimity, uh, sila, or living in harmony, wisdom, and many more. And patience is one of them. So I became very interested in uh, patience because actually patience is my birth name. Uh, Kamala was a name that Manindra gave me when I was really young. So, Paciencia, that's my name and uh, my birth name. So this is not a quality that gets as much attention in Dhamma talk time. Uh, there, there aren't many talks on patience um, as, as there are on the other qualities. So for this reason, it's good to bring it into the foreground and into our place of real recognition, give it nourishment, uh, a place of wise attention. So I want to talk more about the the qualities uh, that come with patience. It can give us that gentle, persevering energy of endurance. Remember the other day I talked in the morning about how it's really important to be able to endure what goes on in our practice, when we're sitting here quietly or when we're doing our walking practice or any time in our general activities. In our lives, you know, we don't have as much um, advantage to, or not advantage, but um, we don't have as much uh, opportunity to practice patience because in our lives, yeah, there are a lot of opportunities, but we'll readily distract ourselves if we're feeling that we can't be patient with something. Or, you know, we'll just kind of look someplace else or go check messages on our phone or how many people liked us the last time we put a message on Facebook. Or, you know, we can easily just go to something like that when we don't like what's going on in our daily lives. But in our practice, you know, we've, we come here to sit and when something happens and comes up in our mind-heart, we have to stay here and sit still. I mean, I, I know how it can be. Like, it can be really, really hard for something, a memory to come up or some, um, something that happened yesterday or last week or last year that that memory comes up and we, we want to get away. I mean, I want to get up and, okay, I'm going to go to the bathroom now. I'm going to get really quiet and go out the door and go to the bathroom. Or if I'm walking along, I'll doing my walking practice, I'll say, it's time to get a cup of tea, <laughs> right? But right when we're sitting here, it's like, we got to sit here. And hardly anybody's getting up, you know, so we have to really endure. We have to really be with it. And so this is real patience, to be able to just endure with what's going on. So it's not only endurance, but remembering to stay open to what's happening and to just be with that pain in the body. Move if you need to, of course, uh, but not all the time. Sometimes we move too quickly. But be with that pain in the body. Be with that memory that comes up that really hurts us. And just allow the mind to be open and see it come and go and come and go. And that's how we get in touch with the quality of patience, just to be with what is. 
It's also to maintain a quiet inner faith and keep, keep us moving in, in the, on the path of our uh, highest potential. So if we don't stay with it, if we can't endure, it's like, you know, we, we move a few steps forward and then we just kind of fall back a little bit because we're not really just staying with what is. So patience gives us that enduring gentleness, yet that clarity of purpose to face whatever there is, inwardly, outwardly, all the obstacles that can arise for us. It gives us the opportunity to really gain that wisdom that is only able to be gained because we stay with it. You know, it's that basic wisdom that can open to how things don't last. I mean, if we, if we don't stay long enough, we never see that. We're just kind of going away every time it's difficult or when it's difficult, we don't go away because of conver- aversion, but we go away because we're looking for something better. <clears throat> so we can relate to it as an opportunity for greater wisdom, for inner growth, whether it's the upheavals in our daily life or something that happens on the sitting cushion that's really, really hard to bear in retreat. For a number of people in Western cultures, patience is regarded as a weakness. And um, it's such a quiet, reserved, unassuming, humble quality. But in a lot of Eastern cultures, and not only Eastern cultures, but many indigenous cultures of the world, Uh, it's really highly regarded as power, the power of patience. In spiritual circles, in the Dhamma, it's respected and highly regarded because patience is called the supreme virtue. Of all the virtuous qualities of the paramis, patience is called the supreme virtue because it helps all the other paramis to strengthen, to deepen. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, When it is said that one should be patient and withstand trouble, that doesn't mean that one should be defeated or overcome. The very purpose of engaging in the practice of patience is to become stronger in mind. And also you want to remain calm. In that atmosphere of calm, wisdom can arise. If you lose patience, if your mind flounders by emotions, then you've lost the power to see clearly. But if you are patient, then you don't have to lose strength of mind. You actually increase your strength. So check it out for yourselves. There are times when, say, you're here in the hall or you're doing your walking practice and something really hard comes up from the inside. You know, like a, a memory or a fear about the future, and the ability to just stay with it, to just uh, let it come, (coughs) let it do its thing. Maybe it gets a little worse, maybe it lightens up, but all during that time, it's just about staying with it. And so during those times for me, I just repeat to myself, all I have to do is stay here. That's all I have to do, is just stay here and bear witness to this. And so it really, really helps me. And then going through something really, really hard, I come away from that feeling very, very strong. And very, very, this inner, um, kind of one of the other inner wealths is patience. To be able to know that one can endure something that's very, very difficult. And I know that I have that patience. Sometimes not, but... It, it's the, uh, it, like Mahasi, our grandfather teacher, Mahasi Seydal says, it has a strength capable of preventing hatred. It resembles the force of an army able to defeat the enemy. And the Buddha said that a person equipped with this strength is a brahmana. That's um, an Indian word for a noble one. Sanskrit word for a noble one, a brahmana. A person equipped with this strength is a brahmana, a noble one. And so just to be able to stay with it, when I read that, the strength capable of preventing hatred, you know, 
if you look at your own lives, and now, you know, at this age, and in my 60s now, I'm looking at things that I've been through and things that going through in recent times. And no matter what has come to me, I, I was just walking up here thinking about patience and remembering Mahasi's statement, strength capable of preventing hatred. Yeah, I have, you know, moments of grr moments and lightning goes by about something that I'm thinking about. But I realize that because of patience, I'm really able to endure things and maybe longer than I need to (laughs) sometimes. But also, I don't see a lot of hatred come up in my own mind in relationship to like feeling betrayed or feeling whatever. I really, it, it takes a long time for me to develop that push away feeling or that kind of striking out. I mean, it hardly, it hardly comes up. So, and I don't mean to be some kind of a saint, but patience is, is really, really helps in, in this life to just be able to stay open to what's happening. And a lot of times, um, you know, there's this word in the, in the other metta chant that we do, that imaya, damanu, and then there's that word kamasaka. Yeah, yeah remember that word kamasaka? Being, it means um, being the owner of one's karma. And so when, when something comes up, kind of remembering a way that something hurt me or someone betrayed me or something like that, I, I hear that word kamasaka. Like, this is something to endure because this is the result of karma, my own karma. You know, so just to stay open to it and, and let it burn up, let it do its thing instead of planting more seeds around it of hatred and um, all of that so that maybe that seed goes into the karmic stream and it rolls around and along the stream and sometime comes up again and then I have to bear that another moment of you know, bearing the fruit of my own intentions and actions in the past. So our elder teacher, Seda Upandita, that I often quote because he was my teacher for more than 30 years, he's well known as a teacher for encouraging continuity of mindfulness. So people often think, oh, he's the effort, he's the energy teacher. But really, all of it is about this continuity of mindfulness. Sometimes, when I would walk into a, I, an interview and he sensed that in some way I was kind of pushing or leaning into the future, wanting something that wasn't really happening, but not liking what was happening now, he could clearly see that there was some imbalance in, in my practice. And actually, even in the way you would walk in, you know, kind of like you, you're trying to get to that place where you make your bowels really fast and you're just leaning into it and you want to get, you want to get it over with and get out of there as soon as you can. You know, as long as I've been doing interviews, I still get nervous. And so I write everything down on a little piece of paper and, and just make my little notes and go from there. And so this time I was walking in and it was a time that he could clearly see some imbalance going on, kind of leaning into the future. And what I was leaning into is I wanted to go home. And I was going to tell him that I wanted to go home. And he kind of probably knew it. He's a kind of teacher that knows your mind more than you do. He can sense what's going on. And so... Um, as soon as I started walking in and before I was go- doing my bows, he said in Pali, that ancient language that the Buddhist teachings were recorded in, Kanti Paramam Tapo Titika. And he was kind of chanting that. Patience is the highest virtue. So I know that Kanti means patience, so I knew he was saying something about patience. So hearing him say that, it was like, uh-oh. lean back into my upright stance and you know just walk in very slowly do my bows and actually you know a lot of your your uh, interview was watching was him watching how you walked in the room yeah 
How many here, I know, how many here have practiced with Sayadaw, Pandita? Well, it's kind of some, sometimes there are some people, but he um, was one of them that would make you, that was your whole um, interview. So tomorrow we're going to start individual interviews. Don't, you don't have to walk slowly in the room. But your whole, your whole interview is watching them watch you walk into the room and um, kneel down and do your bows and then, then you know, say your, what you needed to say and then, um, then you'd get a response. And so uh, if, if it wasn't with mindfulness, your whole practice would be to get up and to walk back out and to come back in and walk, you know, mindfully and do it again. And that would take up your whole time. So, in the 30 years plus that I've known him, I've found him to be very sensitive to energy, quite intuitive. So when there was this impatience there, even as I'm walking into the room, he could sense that. And he would either say that phrase, uh, that patience is the highest virtue, or he would use another phrase, the path to freedom is paved with patience. The path to freedom is paved with patience. So, that was kind of drilled into us as, as students of his. So during every year I take some time of personal retreat, like a month or more. And uh, a few years ago now, I was doing a retreat at the Forest Refuge over in Barrie, Massachusetts. And I recognized that in the very beginning there were some not-so-subtle impatient moments arising. They came from uh, proximate causes of patience to arise, impatience to arise is comparing, judging, criticizing your own practice. And then it's like, you know, you feel kind of strained and then you start striving after that. So you can see that one thing would lead to another. So, of course, I was thinking how we live in this culture of instant gratification. So we're used to getting something like really fast. In the first days of practice and in the interviews, um, you know, people would normally say, even you, I would say, you know, I I just feel still sleepy or I'm feeling really restless or the mind is still all over the place. Well, it's so normal for that to happen in the first days of practice. And it really takes the momentum and the continuity to keep one foot in front of the other, let one breath come at a time, one moment of noticing whatever's happening at a time. And that's how we develop that continuity. Not by rushing, not by, by striving, but really paying attention to what's happening in the moment. So it's helpful to remind myself so many times that the growth and ripening of the seeds of wisdom bearing the fruit of liberation only happens with patience. And that parami of patience, that beautiful virtuous quality, makes all the others ripen, it said. So I, I would still hear uh, his voice in the background, you know, sometimes when I'd be sort of wanting to have something faster than it could actually arise and actually preventing deeper peace to arise because of wanting more, of striving and um, running away from what's unpleasant, running towards what's pleasant. You know, this has a quality of kind of rushing one way or another. So there's nothing to do but to put forth that balanced effort and surrender to the natural process that's unfolding. That last um, uh, letter in RAIN is really very important to remember all the time. Whatever is happening is natural. Whatever is coming up in this moment is a natural unfolding of the law. Sometimes I go to Manindra and say, um, whatever, you know, this is really hard or I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, Manindra had so much patience with me in my early days. And um, he would say things like, this is natural. 
he would he would use this term. This is the law. The law means the natural unfolding of whatever is happening because of conditions around us, conditions within us, and karma. And so you can't you can't avoid any of that. It's just going to happen. So we have. By the way, we have a lot of blessings of wholesome karma just because we're here. So I don't want to point out karma some bad thing. You know, we are so blessed to have wholesome karma in our mind stream, to be able to hear the Dharma, and to be able to have opportunities like this, where we can be in a silent retreat and really look deeply. This means that a lot of wholesome karma is unfolding in your lives right now. So really, it's a time to count our blessings. So, when I would go to him and say, uh, why is this happening, like inwardly, or something happening outwardly in the world? And he would say, it's the law. Surrender to the law. And that was uh, like the same way as saying to ourselves, it's natural, it's nature unfolding. So for me, I hear Manindra saying that all the time. Surrender to the law. Surrender to the law of how it is. It's happening in its own natural process. So during that month of of practice that I had at the Forest Refuge, I memorized and, and made up a mantra for myself. And it's helpful wherever you need some, some help, you know, make up something that's going to help you, a little phrase, a word that's going to help incline your mind towards something that's um, going to support you on your path. So this little mantra I said I made up was, this unfolding process is happening at its own pace, in its own uniqueness for this body-mind continuum, and in its own natural way. Because I would have a tendency to compare myself with however it happened in the past. Mostly, one would compare ourselves to like how it was in the past or maybe how it was in that morning, you know, when you have that wonderful sit. And it's so good in the morning, but it's in the afternoon, it's the hell realms. Like <laughs> Joanne Scarjoon, who's been connected here a lot, you know, and She's um, actually she's on Maui now because she's helping me out on Maui, and so she's such a hard worker. These Minnesota women. <laughs> so uh, she was the one who said, "It's there's nothing like a good sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of your day." <laughs> it's because we're always looking for it, right? So, but it's a natural unfolding for it to be. You're, you're not so, you're usually not as clear in the afternoon, right after lunch, you know, when it's hot and you're tired maybe and you just ate, and so a lot of energy is in your belly trying to digest the food. So you're not as likely to have um, a lot of patience then or a lot of really good mindfulness unless you have this momentum and this continuity of mindfulness that really has ratcheted up in its power and it carries on throughout the day, even through the evening hours, so that some people find uh, that they have, they have a need for less sleep. Um, you can stay up later. So some of you have experienced that, right? You, you just don't... It's okay to get four hours sleep sometimes, so don't worry. You know, if, you're, if you can't sleep, it's just because you're more mindful. Uh, sometimes. Maybe, of course, you're worrying or something else is happening. But sometimes you just can't go to sleep because you're more mindful. And just so you're just no- noticing your breath, noticing whatever's happening during that time. So, this unfolding process is happening in its own natural way, in its own uniqueness, according to your individual body mind continuum. And it's a natural process for you. And see if you can remember that so we don't have this tendency to compare ourselves to to one another also. So how many times have I, you know, practiced a long time, but sometimes there's a lot of pain in the body or a lot of pain in the heart-mind, 
and I, you know I just can't sit still sometimes or I'm it, something happens and I just want to move or open my eyes or um, still being mindful along those moments but then I realize the person in front of me is just hasn't moved at all <laughs> like and that person sits for more than an hour I get up after an hour and that person is still sitting and I start comparing myself you know and who knows that person might be asleep <laughs> really and we're comparing our you know it's, it's so silly sometimes that that's happening we don't even know we've got all these projections going on out there. So, it's, patience is more inclined to arise when we just keep our attention to ourselves and just, you know, have that um, kind of blinders on that just doesn't have to see anybody else or uh, have a, a moment of needing to compare or needing to feel anything that somebody might be feeling about us or we might be feeling about somebody else. Just really have the patience to show up, just to show up for what the schedule says and apply what needs to be applied. When you get lost, okay, that happens, that's natural. You're off track for a while. What's important is that you came back, you know, awareness came back again and boom, that's the important moment. So pay attention to that. And everything else, just drop it. And that's really, that's not just patience with oneself. That's a lot of wisdom. You know, we can remunerate about what happened. You know, where did I go? And I can't do it right. And it just wastes time. So if you can learn to just drop it, it can help. And, you know, if you haven't started learning that now, make it a beginning. You know, to start learning... Okay, when something comes up, get lost. When you come back, that's the moment you begin again. Don't look back. Just begin at that moment. So that patience is the antidote to striving or trying too hard. And all the hidden defilements that come with it, like attachment to results. You know, we want things right away. Um, Aversion. If it isn't going our way, and uh, it isn't as easy as we think it should be or want it to be, aversion comes up. So it's the antidotes to all those defilements, hatred, Mahasi said, I was saying hatred, disappointment, self-judging. Somebody told me in that particular uh, retreat, oh, it was another retreat there that I was teaching, and one of the yogis came to me and reminded me that Achan Shah said, Patience is the supreme incinerator. <laughs> Everything you put into it just like burns up. And I love that image because as soon as something comes up like aversion or attachment to how I want it to be, just when patience comes into the, into the picture, it's like it, it just burns it up. It's just gone. Burns up those kilesas, those defilements. So have you ever noticed that uh, when there's striving, when you're really trying too hard, there's no joy in practice, yeah. right? There's just no joy. It's like, then what comes next? Like, why am I here? You know, I could be going to the movies or something else, you know, getting in somebody else's movie. <laughs> and so uh, striving is really, that's a really badass thing, you know, it's really hard to have striving. So whenever you notice like trying too hard, just settle back, remember that, you know, relax, that's the first thing to do. Relax is being patient, you know, just really relaxing into the moment. And then just allowing that moment. I mean, all of those things bring about patience. Allowing it to happen, why? Because it's happening. (laughs) there's no other reason why it's just happening so what can you do can you order it to stop or something else to come up so just allowing it to happen and all we have to do is just be mindful I remember the one time I went to Manindra this was in Maui and what was one of the first retreats that I organized for him and um, so in that retreat I was the registrar 
I was partly the cook, I was a manager, and I was a yogi. And I was really tired. And so, of course, you know, I went to him and I wanted to just stop being a yogi. And I said, I'll just do everything else, but I'm going to stop being a yogi. Those were the days, you know, when you're in your 20s when you can do it all, but not anymore. So he said... I was kind of complaining to him. And he had, he had that. He was very loving and very compassionate. If I didn't have Manindra, I wouldn't be able to have Upandita as a teacher. But there were times when he can really get on my case. And this time he, he, I saw that real kind of... Um, he would put his lips down and then he would just have this look in his eyes, you know, and he, I could tell he was... He's trying to figure out something to say in English because that wasn't his first language. And then he, all of a sudden, in that moment, he blurted out to me, I'm not asking you to cut down the jungle. Because <laughs> Maui is like, it, it's like kind of like this, but all tropical stuff. And, and it's really like a jungle where we were practicing then, there. And so he said, I'm not asking you to cut down the jungle. I'm just asking you to be mindful. And so, you know, I, was felt, I felt really admonished. And I, so I said, okay, I'll go out, I'll go back, and I'll do it. So, you know, this is how we learn um, when somebody has, when somebody admonishes you, it means that that person has the trust and faith in you that you can do it. And that you can take it. You, you, you'll you be willing to take that, like, okay, this is not, I can do it better, I can do it this way, you know, to kind of show the right way, with a little bit of vigor. So, when there's a measure of patience, it allows us to be with the, un, with the present moment, and the unpleasant moments, too. Then, even with those moments, there can be a deep level of joy. And it might not be like, oh, you know, happy days are here again, kind of thing. But it's just that sense of being content with how things are. In, in, um, it's in Burma, but I don't know if it's in the rest of the Asian cultures. Is It said contentment is the highest happiness in a way. It's kind of a deeper happiness than being really kind of, oh, oh joy, that kind of thing. It's just being content with how things are. Just remembering a time, not here at the Forest Refuge, but when I um, ordained as a nun for the first time. I was in my 50s and the children had grown, and so I went to Burma. um, And I thought, well, this is a time that I'll ordain. And so... I was just doing my practice. I thought I was there for a few months and I thought, well, I had the intention from the very beginning to just um, not enjoy being a nun, but to be a nun in, in, in the fullest manner I could, to really um, take the precepts and handle myself in a noble way and to do everything in, with mindfulness. Everything, even you know when you would wash your robes and you'd hang them up in the in the morning, and um, then you'd walk to the dhamma hall. And I just thought, this is a long stretch I have in front of me. I'm just going to be here. And one day I remember hanging my robes. I still, it's such a vivid moment. And maybe a month or six weeks had gone by, and you you know you wash your clothes early in the morning. And I was hanging my robes and the sun was rising in the background and from my little hut. And as I was just putting them up, I thought to myself, this is the happiest moment of my life. And I still have that memory, you know. And I mean, I, I love my children and I've had lots of happy memories with them and other things. But uh, it was because of that continuity, just being mindful with whatever do I was doing. And that moment had made a deep imprint in my life that just, you know, having washed my robes and hanging them up, it was, it was really, it wasn't like I was in, in under the Bodhi tree. It, it was just like, 
I was on the, next to this clothesline, you know. <laughs> and it was really like the happiest moment of my whole life up to that moment. I've never had a happier moment than that, that I can remember. So it's that quiet inner joy that really nourishes our practice. And I remember after that that I really just kept going, you know, at, at this pace, at regular pace and continuity, momentum built up. And it was a really important time of my practice. Pushing, striving in an imbalanced way depletes our energy a lot. So, um, there were what I did when I was there at the Forest Refuge, getting back to that place, I made my practice very simple. Over there, you, you have to make up kind of your own schedule because you don't have to go to the hall at, at all the time. So I wanted to have a, a self, some self-discipline, so I, I said I was going to go to the hall during these times of the day, actually only three times of the day I went to the hall, and I'm not encouraging that for anybody. It's just what I had to do for myself. And the rest of the time I was really going to encu- um, encourage myself to do mindfulness of whatever I was doing during the day. And I took walks at certain times and, you know, of course, did mindful eating and um, did my yogi job. I, uh, and sometimes I signed up for a pot washer, you know, when the pot washer didn't show up. Yeah. And... Um, it, I, I just did everything in a mindful way. And sometimes I would totally lose it and then just come back and start again, you know, pick up the beat again. And it was really, I could remember that continuity because of just being patient with everything that happened. Really gave me that sense of inner joy. And that's good energy, you know, good energy. It's that, that joy, that kind of... Um, Kind of joyful investigation of what's happening moment to moment is the proximate cause for concentration to arise. That kind of concentration in our practice of vipassana that's moment to moment. Not the, on one object, but on changing objects. So um, doing that, of course, the sleepiness disappeared, the restlessness in the body disappeared, there was an ability to be with things as they are, and it really gave me a lot of power coming from that patience that brought about continuity of mindfulness, that brought about a sense of inner contentedness with whatever was going on, and a lot of joy during that time. Of course, it would come, it would come and go, but there wasn't this striving to, to get anywhere. So if you can do that all during the day, then you won't be unhappy with your practice. If there's this, just keep that regular pace that you have. Be mindful as much as you can. You know, we have, Manindra used to say, you can learn from every side. And so that's why we, Bonnie and I and our other colleagues, read poems and other places from other places of inspiration. And I want to read to you a part of this from the Tibetan tradition, the Venerable Lama Gendun Rinpoche. And this is from Free and Easy, um, Spontaneous Vajra Song. And this will be on the list at the end. You, you can Google that. Okay. So this is about non-striving. Happiness and peace cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but it is already possible in open relaxation and letting go. So don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do or undo. I'm going to say that again. There is nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all, has no lasting reality whatsoever. Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up, falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. 
It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching it. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax, this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, nothing missing. So everything is there, just showing up for it. When I was uh, looking into this subject of uh, patience, I learned that during the time of the Buddha, he laid down certain rules for those who joined the, um, the bhikkhuhood and the monastery, the men and women, monks and nuns. And so like we do here on retreat, in order to practice on an individual and community level, there are certain guidelines that we have to support our inner quietude in terms of clarity and keeping the practice going. Rules that give us a sense of safety. That's why we have these guidelines. So in the Buddha's time, these rules were called the Code of Conduct, the Vinaya. And there's 227 of them. Uh, because every time the Buddha saw that something kind of went awry, there was a rule made you know, for that. And so up to this, uh, during his time, and up to this day, there are 227 rules. That's why you, <laughs> I guess you might see us making a, another rule every day, like, you know, maybe be careful about note writing or the other things. But before he made all those rules, there was only one rule, and that was patience. And until this day, patience is still part of all of that. Maybe it's kind of the foundation or the overarching thing of uh, all of those rules of conduct. So here's a story I often tell that makes a good point. And I actually I found this in the sports section of our Honolulu newspaper. Um, you know, Hawaii has been known for a long time to be the only Buddhist state because there are a lot of uh, people from Asia there who are Buddhists, you know, like Thais and Vietnamese and Chinese, Japanese. And so um, these things, uh, a lot of things like this would be uh, in even in the sports section of our newspapers. So this is about a young boy who traveled to Japan uh, to a school of a famous martial artist. And uh, when he arrived there at the dojo, that's kind of the place where they practice, he was given an audience by the teacher and called sensei. And so the sensei said to him, what do you wish from me? And the young boy said, I wish to be your student and become the finest karateka. I guess that means... Uh, you know, the person who perfects that particular uh, practice, the finest karateka in the land. How long must I study? Ten years at least, the master answered. What if I study twice as hard as your other students? Twenty years. (laughs) Twenty years. What if I practice day and night with all effort? Thirty years, was the master's reply. So, uh, he said, how is it that each time I say I'll work harder, you tell me it'll take longer? And the answer is clear, said the master. When one eye is fixed upon your destination, there is only one eye left with which to find the way. Not fully present, right? That's what he's talking about. Not fully present. So, by this story, we learn that it, that it doesn't help to rush something as precious and as important as the development of deep peace, unconditional peace, and liberating understanding. So, you know, just let it unfold. A full and complete presence gives us more clarity and a far-ranging view, so we can look in the distance and know, this is the path I want to take, but this is the moment that I have to be with. So there's, there's this saying, 
the first step depends on the last. You know, like you really have to kind of see that far-ranging aspiration that you have, and uh, and also be really be present in this moment. So, to respond skillfully along the way to whatever surprises come up. So, in my early years of practice, when I was in my 20s, there was a great hunger for the Dhamma, the spiritual urgency, and a lot of impatience. There was greed. There was what we call Dharma greed. You know, when you really want more than is being given to you. And there was a really beautiful um, African-American woman one time who came to me and said, in a retreat, said, you know, I realize that um, I'm breaking a precept when I'm wanting more than is being given. It's like she was trying to take what was not really actually being given to her because she was trying too hard. And it was, it was really a powerful way that she translated the, the precepts for herself. Mm-hmm. And it really helped her to kind of settle back in the moment and just be with things as they are. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a, a really wonderful thing for me to hear and always remember that. Suzuki Roshi says, it's when your practice is greedy that you become discouraged with it. So, you know, you can hook those two up. Practice, greediness, and then discouragement that, that you can see right there, the cause and effect relationship of that. So, um, one, the other time, uh, I went to Manindra so many times when I was in a crisis, but this time I was in a crisis and went to him, and he said to me, just he said, oh, yogi mind, yogi mind. And it, it's, a, it's a mind where you, you, take, you see something happening and you make it so much bigger than it really is, you know? And so we, we become um, the drama king or the drama king of, uh, queen of the moment. And uh, I love Steve Armstrong's uh, definition of yogi mind. He says, the magnification of the insignificant to a crisis stage. <laughs> Isn't that true? Like somebody's, I don't know, whatever, you know, taken our walking path. or And it, it's such a big deal for us. And it's like, you know, we've got how many acres here to walk on? And so, not that it's ever happened to anybody here, but I find it, maybe it has, but I find it so. You know, there were certain areas that I really loved to walk around in the, in the, on the forest refuge and when I was there. And, and, you know, I'd really be looking forward to it. And then, you know, I'd have greed for that walking path. And as soon as I got out there, somebody else would be walking there and that very path I wanted. And I could see that, Oh, this disappointment now is the effect of the cause. The cause was greed. And you really, you can really see in that moment what uh, the, the dukkha, the suffering that greed can bring you. So having an agenda, um, expecting practice to unfold in a certain way. One of them came across a saying by Swami Satchitananda, no appointment, no disappointment. So you don't have an appointment with your practice or how it's supposed to be. Someone asked His Holiness in, in an interview, have you made progress in your practice? And he responded somewhat like this. I'm just paraphrasing. He said, one year, no, cannot see much progress. Five years, little. Ten years, some. Twenty years, yes. So, you know, after I heard that interview, I thought, well, who am I, you know, <laughs> to think that I'm going to make this progress when I've only been on the path like five or ten years. So from Rilke, one of my um, favorite wisdom authors of poets and great writing, said, be patient toward all that is unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers that cannot be given. 
because you would not be able to live them, and the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. So, haven't we all sat with... We want to understand, we want to know why this happened. Uh, We want... You know, there's all these questions that we have about practice. and So, sometimes it's great to just make the the question the koan. And, you know, something that keeps coming up for us as a question. Just let it be the koan so that maybe someday, you know, the answer will come. And maybe it'll come that night or the next day or ten years from then. So, why is it the highest virtue? Because we discover that it actualizes some of the other virtuous qualities, as I mentioned. Equanimity is one of them. Resting the mind before it falls into extremes. I may um, talk about equanimity itself just in a a talk, so I won't fill that out so much. It also, uh, so there's equanimity. It also supports a gentle flowing strength of endurance. Um, I remember uh, it was said it was Suzuki Roshi who said this, that it's better not to uh, think about the notion of progress. It's better to think short moments many times. You know, just not keeping your eye too much on what's ahead of you, but short moments many times. So a living example for me of this gentle flowing constancy of strength, of endurance, is Aung San Suu Kyi. Mm-hmm. So some of you know of her. She's the kind of the, the bodhisattva, the democracy movement in Burma, Myanmar. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in 91, and she initiated that nonviolent movement towards democracy in her country. She spent two decades in some form of detention, at home or in a public jail, and she was finally released about five years ago, in 2010. So she reminds me of this gentle flowing strength. Whenever there are hard moments for me, I just kind of remember her. I never really met her. Um, I've seen her in public, but I never really met her in person. There were close times, though, that uh, she was at the monastery where Upandita teaches, and her house is nearby, so if she would, she maybe she would have gone to the monastery, all the guards would be with her, because she would be, I guess, allowed to go visit her teacher, which was also Upandita, and, um, and offer food or something like that. But uh, if I'd walk, sometimes I'd stay in a family's home near the monastery, and if I would walk there and all these guards would be around, I'd know, okay, um, Aung San Suu Kyi is here, so I'd turn around and go back to where I was staying. But she really embodied this kind of um, loving kindness and patience and endurance and just the ability to see clearly and know what step to take. And she was the kind of person who reminded me of a a constantly flowing river which has this quality of non-opposition. So it's not pushing against you know, this gentle flowing river just flows under rocks and over them and around them. And if debris comes, never mind. You know, it's just this debris and keeps flowing along. And she has, with that, she's gather, gathering a lot of strength. And I can see that through her time there of being um, this leader in her country, this tiny woman and um, very thin. And, but she's just kind of a heart of gold and so much strength. She has the admiration and allies uh, from a lot of people within the power structure, the military and the non-military. And she's been practicing for a long time also, Vipassana and Metta. And uh, at one time, after she was incarcerated in one of the public jails, there was a news release describing a trial where... She was on on trial for something that was absolutely ridiculous. It wastes my time to even tell you about it and your time. So she was on trial for this. 
And so there were um, news. There was news media there, and so this is what the news media reported. And I was hearing it. Uh, I guess it had happened a few days before that when she walked in a room where there was a lot of government and court officials, various military leaders there, and here she is, this you know tiny, beautiful woman, and these just strong, really powerful men. You know, it's all men who run the country. Um, Not now, though, because she's the head of the Democratic Party. Said she was serene, beautiful, and carried a deep sense of non-harming and friendship when she walked to her place. The government officials and generals and military stood up in a natural response of respect to her. I mean, you know, that that wasn't... um, what they would do. They would normally just let her walk in and take her seat. But they stood up and they put their hands together in um, pranam to her. And so it was really so much, her noble qualities are so, so beautiful. And it really inspires me. She's just living her life, genuinely being herself. And those noble qualities just naturally come out. So... And she's just herself, you know. The one place where I saw her was at a the first book se- selling time for a lot of years, where they could sell books publicly. So everybody bought the bro- books that they were kind of um, hiding in their homes, you know, and they were selling them secondhand, and, mm-hmm. and new books came in. So you could buy just about any book that was available um, that was in Burma that people brought out. And so it was, it was a wonderful time. So there was a book about her written by an aide that she had, a woman aide um, assistant that she had. And that woman assistant, this is a part of her who's just, just genuine. She's just genuinely a woman. And um, she would describe Aung San Suu Kyi uh, whenever she went out to give some kind of a talk, some place where thousands of people would gather. She would tell what she wore. You know, of course, I love that story. <laughs> I love the, you know, that she wore this color, and then the sash that she would wear was like this, an opposite color, and what kind of flowers were in her hair. And then she, she loved perfume. And, you know, the women of Burma love perfume. And so, <clears throat> if they like you, you know, when you go by, they spray perfume on you. <laughs> and so one time... She came back and she was telling her assistant, her aide, that, well, I went out today, but the perfume I got was Charlie. I guess that is sold in drugstores, you know, <laughs> Charlie, and maybe not. Uh, maybe I'm misspeaking there. So anyway, she says, not so good. <laughs> and then, um, then there was this time, she was telling the story about perfumes, when uh, the military came to the door and she thought she was going to be arrested again. So uh, they came to the gate and the helper opened the gate and they came in, you know, all um, militaristically and with their guns and everything. And and so she said to her aide, we might be going to jail, you know. And um, so uh, she said... Well, she said, never mind. She said, I have some French perfume in my pocket. (laughs) She took it out and she said, if we're going to jail, I'm going to spray this on us. So she sprayed on both of them. And it was like, shoot, if I'm going to jail, I'm going to be wearing French perfume. (laughs) And I just thought that was so cool. You know, here she was, this power lady and she was just as feminine as she could be so when you um, then there was this interview and shortly after that there was this interview because there was a lot going on about Burma and her and the Democratic Party and um, an Australian lady was interviewing her and I caught it on one of the YouTubes and uh, she said the interviewer said when you see and hear what the military establishment is doing to the people of your country, don't you want to bring them down? And she said, oh no. She had those really expressive, beautiful eyes. 
And she said, oh no. And I really recognized how incredulous her eyes looked at, at that moment to the interviewer. And she said, not at all. You know, she was, um, has this kind of British accent. She said, I want to raise them to their potential of integrity. And it's not that she had anger towards them. And, and I realized that, you know, that's kind of like <laughs> how I feel sometimes, too. Like, even when things are difficult or another person's difficult, it's not that I want to, you know, I'm just kind of seeing the potential, seeing the potential in that person all the time. So there's equanimity and gentle flowing endurance, and there's a lot of beautiful qualities that happen in our hearts and minds in connection with, with this patience. So what about impatience? You know, it's really um, the, the thing that traps us a lot and it makes us stumble. And so I talked a lot about our time in, in the sit, on the sitting cushion in retreat time, but at home I remember um, a time of impatience that I'll never forget, and um, it really encourages me to be more patient. And that was a time with my mother. And um, my mom is this uh, was this you know little beautiful Filipino lady, Filipina lady. And what she loved to do for us is to cook the wonderful foods that we have in the Philippines. You know, lumpia and um, and adobo. You know, some of you shaking your heads, you know what those are, which is really in garlic fried rice. Oh my God, you know, I wish I could have some right now. <laughs> so she would love to push her, her cart in the grocery store at her pace and just, you know, look at everything and, and then pick it out. And this was a time when I was raising kids and I had a lot on my to-do list. And so it was very difficult and for me to get everything done. And so at this time, I was really pushing my mother to hurry up. And so I just said, Mom, we have to go, you know. And so she was in, about in her 80s, maybe her late 70s. And and so I was pulling the cart, and my mom was kind of taking quick steps and got in line, got everything together, paid for it, got in the car, and she was sitting beside me. And... Um, she, she wasn't a lady of a lot of complaints. She was there, and then I heard her sniffling. And um, so I knew, I knew what was happening, because I rushed her, and I was really impatient. So I turned to her, and I said, Mom, what's wrong? And she said, I'm shedding a tear. That's how... You know, because she would hear, heard it on the television. So she'd say, I'm shedding a tear. And so I, I was so um, sorry. You know, I just felt so ashamed in a good way uh, of myself. And, um, and I vowed that I'm never going to rush my mom again. Mm. And that was the most important thing, you know, that I could do. For her, she was so patient with me. You know, they say that you can carry. The Buddha says you can carry your your pa- your parents on your shoulders for the rest of your life. And I know many of us haven't had that good of an upbringing. Too, you know, we still have our own places that we suffer inside because of that. Not all of us, but but the Buddha said you can carry your your parents on your shoulders for the rest of your life but you'll never be able to repay them for bringing you into this world as a human being I mean that's the preciousness of you know having parents that if they didn't come together we wouldn't be born in this realm and wouldn't be hearing the Dharma at this time so Impatience is uh, something that can really give us a lot of good, good feeling of remorse, you know. And so, think of the times that you've had that, and it doesn't do us any good. And um, so, can we learn a lesson from that? The opportunities we have to practice patience are usually many small moments 
um, just here on retreat, you know, can we have patience with our fellow yogis? Who knows what suffering they're having to make them shuffle around all the time, you know? Or um, to get up and have to go, leave the hall, because it's really, really hard. So who knows what, what's going on in their, their minds and hearts because they're that way or that, you know, they're whatever you see them doing. That Just having patience with each other, that, can, that really is the, makes the container of retreat really, really sacred. So I want to read this beautiful Chinese proverb to end with. Patience is power. With time and patience, the mulberry leaf becomes silk. So too with our own minds and hearts. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.